Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the NYRB classics. I'm Kasia. I'm Dylan. Our book this week is Mary Olivier, A Life by Mason Clare. As a child, Mary Olivier's dreamy disposition and fierce intelligence set her apart from her Victorian family, especially her mother, Little Mama, whose dazzling looks cannot hide her meager love for her only daughter. Mary grows up in a world of her own, a solitude that leaves her free to explore her deepest passions for literature and philosophy, for the austere beauties of England's North Country, even as she continues to attend to her family. But in time, the independence Mary values, at almost any cost, threatens to become a form of captivity itself. And we are joined by librarian, author, and critic Nancy Pearl. Welcome, Nancy Pearl. We are delighted to be speaking with you. Oh, I'm thrilled to be with you to talk about this book, especially. Yeah. Well, we wanted to ask you about that. So you've recommended a great many books over the years. Uh, What made you choose this one to talk about on the show? Well, this one I have a funny relationship with. I first read it back in the early 1980s and when I was working at a bookstore in Tulsa. And it was one of those very well-curated, very small bookstores. But we, nice. the Dial, Dial at that time, Dial Publishing was, I believe, distributed by Harper. And the Harper rep sold us all of the Virago reprints that Dial was doing. And you could always tell a Virago reprint from that period because they were black and they had a photograph on the cover. And and so I picked up, how are we pronouncing? Is it, how do you pronounce it? Mary Oliver? Because it has that extra I in it. I originally was saying Mary Oliver, but then I was like, is it Olivier? We had to switch halfway through when we realized that. So we've been going between. Yeah, that's what I've been doing too. (laughs) Because whenever I say Olivier, I think of Laurence Olivier, which doesn't make sense. Sure. <laughs> so I was I was going through and reading all of the books, all of the Virago books, and and I was in my thirties, and I was seeing a psychiatrist in Tulsa who was a real Freudian, <laughs> and I was telling her how tragic I thought this book was. And that I I just could not bear that that was happening to the main character, and that this is this is how her life had turned out. And the psychiatrist, a woman, said she said very tartly, she said she chose to live that life, mm-hmm. and I have never forgotten that. And then to reread it, I have to say, I still. I still think what a tragic life she had mm-hmm. mm. and and why so so that's why I thought it'd be really interesting because I hadn't reread it since then i I think it would be a good reread, yeah, especially at a different you know it's a certainly a different time in my life uh-huh. and a different time in the life of the of the way we think about feminism and women's roles and all of that sure and i and i'm now i'm wondering whether all of those virago books are just so darn depressing but <laughs> in a great I, way though yes a kind of joyful depressingness right. that i get but, from virago but, did, but <laughs> yeah yes but did you did you buy into her i mean mm. At the end of the book, she's presented as, I mean, I read it as this life of sacrifice, but she, but, but Mary reads it, read, understands her life as one of, that sacrifice is one of the highest things that you can aspire to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It felt very Christian in that way. Yes. Yes. Very. Yeah. Yep. Yep. A life of self-sacrifice. But she gave up so much. It was a hard book. It was. So we're going to start off the podcast a little bit talking about the, the background of the author, as we always do. Yeah, good. So Mason Clare was born in the 19th century, and she wrote a lot of her works in the late 19th and 20th century. She's a really important British writer to the modernist literary movement. She grew up in Ilford with her family, which included five older brothers. Her mother was from a very strict religious family, and her father died of alcoholism in her adolescence. The family struggled with congenital heart disease that was carried on through generations. This caused her brothers to be regularly sick, and Mason Clare needed to take care of them. She never married and took care of her mom until her mother's passing in 1901. And now that we talked about the summary of the book, 
What what else do we talk about? <laughs> I'm sorry, did I mess it up? No, I mean no, 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 this, no, this is no, the thing no. is it's the the handy thing is like the biography almost doubles as the plot of the book. This is it does a mm-hmm. deeply autobiographical book that is presented at first as fiction, and then by the end we realize there is an interesting boundary being crossed, and I I just found that really moving. But I should say before we go on, there is a lot more to Sinclair's life than just what is covered in the book. She was an active suffragist. She is said to be the first person to use the term stream of consciousness in a literary context, which I found like amazing. Mm-hmm. Her bibliography draws on modernism, psychoanalysis, like you talked about with Freud. I'm sure that person was interested in that. And the supernatural, all of which I see glimmers of in, in Mary Olivier. We don't get much in her. I mean, I did have not read a lot about her biography mm-hmm. about her life, but was Christianity her mother? I know was very strongly mm-hmm. devout, um, you know, very pious, very bought into that whole self-sacrifice kind of notion. But in May Sinclair's life, was that equally important to her? Do we know anything about? Yeah, I I was reading this on the Wikipedia page. I just pulled it back up, but she it says Sinclair was interested in parapsychology and spiritualism, and she was a member of the Society for Psychical Reach Research from 1914. Mm-hmm. So it seems like she maybe kind of channeled some of the traditional organized religious context into that spiritualism trend that was popular with intellectuals at that time. Yes, right. exactly. Right. Yeah, this this is an interesting, to me, this is an interesting book because I think in any novel, the author has put him or herself, him or her, their self into the novel in one way or another, so that in a sense, all novels have strands of autobiography in one way or another. But this is so clearly her life mm-hmm. that it's almost uncomfortable to read because you're you you you're just so inside of it, yeah. And it's yes. a life so foreign. Well, Cassie, how did you read it? Oh, you mean kind of a, as a as a, modern a contemporary thing. woman reading yeah. it? Right. I was amazed that it's not as well known. I just it seemed to me because me it too. is, and we'll get into this later that it's in dialogue with so many of the foundational like women's writers' books and books that that everyone has read probably in school that that it updates that and i mean maybe it's like it's too tragic that to be popular now Mm -hmm. uh, people are probably craving something that's a little bit more hopeful that the main character has agency but i actually think she she does but it's in her inner life Mm -hmm. and that's the tension of the book is like her going back and forth between going along with the societal norm what's what's expected of her and then her pursuing things within herself and keeping this this fire alive inside and i found that really moving mm-hmm. for sure i'll also say this also really feels in dialogue with a lot of the emerging modernist period this book was published in the same print or literary magazine, magazine literary yeah. magazine that ulysses came out in they were side right. by side mm-hmm. which i can't imagine picking up a better magazine than that one because <laughs> those are <laughs> two pretty good books right but think how many people think how many people read Ulysses and how few people exactly. comparatively read this. Right. Yeah, we should be right. reading mm-hmm. both constantly. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, wait. So, Cassie, you said it was tragic, which is how I felt, and that whole lack of agency, mm-hmm. which is as women we still deal with. Yeah. In one degree or another, but do, do you buy her happiness at the end? <laughs> we have a list of discussion questions, oh. and that was our final question. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. All right, well, let's do that then. Let's do that. <laughs> I think it's good to build up to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because no, that, right. that's a huge... That's it's, a huge thing. I right. think it's definitely something that I will be... Pon- like, I have a, some thoughts on it now, but I will continue to ponder it. We'll and be on our deathbeds not, and just being like... It's not right. going to go away. Yeah, right. that this book hang. It hangs on to you, I think. Yeah. But uh, we we do talk a little bit about the the cover art. So on the NYRB edition, which I don't know if you've seen it. Yes. Yeah. It's got this painting called Vase of Peonies on a Pedestal by Edouard Manet. And 
at first glance, you see a beautiful bouquet of flowers, but when you look a little bit closer, you see this sort of trampled on flower lying out in front. And when Dylan and I were talking about this last night, he said, I've never seen a flower that represented a character so well as Mary <laughs> Olivier. <laughs> uh, but you, you pulled up your Virago edition, which I looked it up is an oil portrait called A Girl in Black by George Clausen. What do you think of seeing that portrait on the cover of a book? Did you kind of pick it up and read read the book as if that was the image of Mary? I think I must have mm-hmm. at that time. I think now, I don't know what I think about the cover. I, I think I like the NYRB cover better. We agree with that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I love the Virago paintings in general. Right. I like that that vibe, but... I think I don't want to have an image of a person no. in my head. Yeah, I want to be right. able to make it myself. Yeah, in, in general, I really prefer either an all-text cover mm-hmm. or something that doesn't put oh. somebody's face into your mind when you're reading the book. Yeah. 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 And We're again, on the same like, page. that flower on the front cover is just... It really it captures that feeling of Mary Olivier so well. And I found that interesting because... This is a very English and a very modernist book. And I'm surprised they didn't go with an English or modernist painting. It's a very realist. Mm-hmm. It's very French. Right. But it is exactly what this book asks for, mm-hmm. for a, a artistic mm. representation visually. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a perfect choice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think about other Virago paintings. And many of them just have the main character, a, a, a painting that, represents the main character this yeah. i don't think is a is a very attractive <laughs> very i do attractive like the painting cover. though i i think it's a do really you? good painting yeah it's kind of spartan mm. and so like it's kind of mary's the drabest interpretation of her life potentially exactly, yeah. is that yeah uh-huh. so you have a rule that says you should read at least 50 pages of a book before giving up on it <laughs> and the first 50 pages of this book are actually some of the most challenging in it because yes, they, they depict an in infant's emerging consciousness what was it about the beginning of mary olivier that gripped you and made you want to keep going well i think i th- you know these days i think we see a lot of books that are t- are written by adults looking at the world through a child's eyes but there, there, they, there's usually something in those books that doesn't ring true. You know, there's something that shows you that this is an adult mm-hmm. telling the story, inhabiting this this young person. But I think the first, I think that, and I agree that it's hard. It's really hard because it's because it is from a child's viewpoint, and yet it's not childish. Yes, in its in its thinking. I mean, you could. I think right from the beginning, see how intelligent Mary was, mm-hmm. which makes it all the sadder that in many ways <laughs> that's wasn't certainly wasn't appreciated in her family. Yeah, at all. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I I counted it out, and fifty pages goes up into where she and Roddy see go to the cemetery and see the funeral procession. And I, I, you're absolutely right, because I saw a lot of people when I was doing some reading on the book, uh, make comments on like, it starts with very childlike language. And I'm like, does it? It's it's not. It's mm-hmm. Kasi and I were reading the first chapter to sort of side by side and looking over at each other like, what is what is going on? What What, what is we, going on? Yeah, we were so shocked by the sort of the way it was presenting the first moments of consciousness in a human being. And it is got a childlike sensibility of the world, but the language is unlike anything I've ever experienced. It was it was great. So I, I, I do think it's good that you pointed out that it, the language itself is not childlike. And right. yeah, I, I, I love those first 50 pages. <laughs> good. <laughs> Otherwise, you would have had to stop reading. <laughs> I do think it's a book, I think partly what makes it so challenging, those early pages, is that not only is it a, it's a world that we're not familiar with anymore, you know, and so there's that barrier of that whole Victorian period, and then we have to see it through the eyes, but not the language of a child. It's very... But not mm-hmm. any harder mm-hmm. than Ulysses, so you would think that... Not necessarily. 
I guess I felt more prepared with Ulysses because it was right. sort of this dominant right. text, this brick, this thing where you're going to be challenged every new chapter. And I saw the cover of Mary right. Olivier and I yeah. assumed like, oh, Bronte. Mm. And it, it has a sensibility to it that goes along with yeah. Bronte, but like those first couple pages felt like falling out of a out of a window. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. Right. It's very disorienting, but that's what gives it its power. Yeah. It's true. Good point. There's another Virago book that I am very fond of called it, it's by Rose McCauley called um <laughs> what is it called? Because it's another it's another fam- Victorian family father putting a clamp on the family and everything revolving around him. That's okay. We'll we'll figure it out. If you let us know, we can try to put it in at the end of the episode. The book is, among other things, a contemplation on the passing of time. Sinclair's language evolves and regresses throughout different phases of Mary's life so that by the end, you're left to question what is the meaning of time? What, what are your thoughts on the treatment of time as a subject? And did it feel lifelike to you in any way? It did. I think, I think the treatment of time, I think that's a great way to think about this book. Because I think that as the book progresses, the treatment of time and the way Mary views time changes. And when you view time as a child, things seem endless in a way. Mm -hmm. And then the older you get, the faster time goes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it, and that Mm -hmm. feeling is really based in many ways on reality that the older you get a day is shorter uh, of a percentage of your life than it is when you're a child. Mm. And I think that that in some ways, you know, the first part of her, you know, her childhood, really, we're reading a lot about it. And and, sure. and she's experiencing a lot. And then as she grows, as she matures and becomes an adult, and especially toward the end, the days go by very quickly. Mm-hmm. She'll have interjections of like, it's been two weeks since like literally the last sentence of right. what happened yes. and nothing's changed with mama or something. And it's yeah. like, it's, it's all slipping by. Right. And even the little chapter or sub chapter sections get shorter. Yes. Too. That's true. It'll just be one sentence or a couple sentences. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't realize that. I didn't pick up on that. So that Rose Macaulay book is called Told by an Idiot. <laughs> and that's another book in which a young woman is growing up in a family and and time is going by. But in that book, you get a sense of British history, mm. very much British history. And in this book, mm. the larger world isn't isn't there. The most you get are just mentions of campaigns in India. Right. That the brother goes on, but you you know absolutely nothing about the politics or actions that are being no. done there at all. It's just right. It's almost right. like a vacation in Mary's yeah. mind. And we don't know, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know who the prime minister is. I mean, the larger world yeah. is pretty much. I mean, that her world is so narrow and confined, and yes, and, yeah, yeah, and her mother kind of r- ruling the family by weakness. Yeah, see, exactly. She is one of the most terrifying literary characters I've met in a a while. Yeah. One of the great mothers (laughs) in a book, too. A plus mom. (laughs) Well, why why does Mary love her so much? Because it's her mom. Like, Mm. it's because she has this mentality of, you know, this is my family. I can't choose who it is. I think she just gives in to her and the more and more she gives into her the more and more she seems easier i think to give in she fights more early on it seems about the greek text she wants to read and by the end there's there's more submission rather than less and you could you could argue that that is her agency deciding that this is the place she wants to be it's just taking care of her family so maybe you know the th- your your therapist back in the day has has an yeah, interesting point. Right. It doesn't feel like that at all to a to right. a reader like me in in 2023, but right. it's just fascinating to see her make this choice and I guess 
So I'm going to think about another way. Early on, Mark leaves, even though he says that he he should always make Mama happy, and he he sort of almost demands to marry you. Make sure Mama's okay, and Mark is everything to Mary. So if, if anything, it almost seems like the more Mark leaves, to the point where can we spoil Cassie? <laughs> I think we can in this case. Yeah. 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 When Mark dies, it seems like she's fully submitted right. to the mother. Even though, it, and even though at one point she recognizes or she says that Mark is very much like her mother. Mm. Yeah. That, that they all have that kind of what they've taken from the mother. Yeah. The, the, the father is another really curious, curious character because he's so cruel evil boy i had such strong reactions <laughs> when i read this book all those years ago and uh-huh. still i just thought wow those fathers could do anything and truly those boys tried their best to to rebel but in the end mm. were kind of forced into bought into the whole victorian ethos mm-hmm. yeah leaves you a lot to to wonder about So switching gears a little bit, the story is predominantly told in the third person, but there are many times when Sinclair switches into the second person. How did you react to those shifts and what did you see as their purpose in the narrative? I think that the purpose of that is to bring the reader even more into the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that the third person creates a distance I think that the second person is a good balance between the first person and the third person, in a sense. And it invites the the reader into the story in a way that the third person doesn't. And, you know, we're so, especially reading it for the first time now, if it were in the first person, I think we would automatically think, oh, unreliable narrator, mm. you know, which would skew the way... We read this book. Mm. Yeah. What did you think? I felt like it kind of going back to what we said about the the infancy portion. It was really like causing you to question identity and like, how is a child different than a baby different than a middle aged person different than an an older person? And as time goes on in the book, you know, Mary is questioning. There's a part that I really liked near the end where she's like. I'm 46, but I feel happier. I feel like I have more youth now than I did when I was 19. I got, she said, I'm Mm. paraphrasing, I got life at the wrong end. I grabbed life at the wrong end or something. And it's like she doesn't exist. It's very um, metaphysical. She she doesn't necessarily exist in one version of her life. She exists in different Marys and at different times. And that you is almost like she's looking at herself from outside of herself. Yes. But you're also implicated in this story and it and it ca- it causes you to think more about your relationship to these characters. Absolutely and, true. And, yeah. And your relationship to time and the way at every age you're still every age you ever were. Yeah, that's a great point. Yes, yes. And that's I think that's really interesting because we think so much in the 21st century, we think so much about about change and how you can make yourself a new person through whatever. But a, a book like this, I think, reminds us that you are who you are because of who you were. Mm. And separating yourself from the past is, impo- is impossible. Yeah. Yeah. It also reminded me, I, I think I wrote this down. But I I wrote down it was a reminder of reality to me where I would sometimes get sucked into this book in a way of just the reading of a narrative that this is a a, a fictional person, even though I knew this was a very autobiographical work. And it it reminded me again that these are real breathing people. However fictionalized it is, I don't know. But I, I wanted to read one little part it's on page 120 of my edition on on my phone where it, 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 she hadn't gone back to the second person in a while and it it struck me as something really overwhelming and terrifying she's with mark at the piano 
And it said, there's a, there's this paragraph. It says mama passed and looked at them. Her face shrank and sharpened under the dropped wing of her hair. She must have heard what Mark said. She hated it when Mark talked and looked like that. She hated it when you played her music. Oh, yeah. Oh, yep. yep. And then going on with that, where it says, let's see, uh, mine, this is on page 120 of my edition. Which maybe I think maybe is- the, what I read was a scanned version of the Virago. Oh, <laughs> could well, be, could well be. mine says, she could play it better than mama. Mama never could see that the bass might be even more important than the treble. She yes. was glad that she could play it better than mama. And she hated herself for being glad. Oh, I know that just you oh. feel like a knife in your heart. This book is so creatively affecting. I never expect the punches it's throwing. Yeah, right. There's so many devastating moments, particularly between the mother and the daughter. I mean, the father had this weird relationship with his sons, mm-hmm. but the mother had this just living, disapproving, yet living off her daughter's life in a way. Yeah. There's a part towards the end where there's, if we're going to take it in a very three-act structure, there is a confrontation in a sense where you understand this horrible cloud of jealousy that the mother has towards Mary that I found recontextualized a lot. I had, when I was writing these discussion questions as I read, I wrote one about what would we consider the mother's motives? I didn't expect it to be stated so outright at the end. And it wasn't what my notes had. And I found it. The book told you, yeah. Eye-opening. I, I want to read it again because of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And going off that, this book does deal a lot with the idea of repression. Mary and therefore the audience are consistently hidden from the truth or lied directly about what is going on in the world around her. Why does Sinclair withhold so much of the action from the reader? Maybe that was her only experience. That mm-hmm. was the only thing that she knew. If you think of yourself as the reader of your life, mm. yeah, I don't, I don't know. I like that. She gives us such hints, though. Yes, she does. The one about Jimmy was really interesting because Jimmy disappears, and even later on the book, she's like, "I don't know what happened to Jimmy." You kind of understand what happened with Aunt Charlotte. You don't really understand right. the the steps, the one, two, three, to actually the that confrontation in the bedroom, and then her being in the asylum later, but you really are lost with Jimmy. That is a strange moment early on in the book. Yeah, yeah. And I think maybe in a, in a contemporary novel that wouldn't be allowed. No. You know, you know. None of this would be allowed nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> but that it would have to be. I know. I'm, I know he. they just have such this lovely, such a promising time together and a happy time for Mary. And then he's gone Mm. and we know nothing else. Yeah, it was like a depiction of passivity, the way that she, maybe her personality is, her temperament, or the way that she's forced to be because of the circumstance, the upbringing. And it felt almost like a horror movie, like those horror movies where they don't show you Mm -hmm. the monster or the or the kill and it's kept to the side and it it, it was almost like the terror was greater <sighs> and those details like i remember the when charlotte is carried away and there's white tool on the steps yeah. out the front door and you could i could just visualize that and it's so haunting it's worse to me than if i had sure. yeah. known all of the one two three four steps and if if it's being viewed by someone who by upbringing and by the time that in which she was living, you wouldn't know any of those things. I mean, you mm-hmm. wouldn't have a sense of, mm-hmm. I was going to say a sense of something outside yourself, but then that you did have all that religiosity of, of the mother yeah. influence, influencing you. So, right. I mean, it's not easy being a child in any sense. And it must have been... <laughs> Victorian childhood. That's rough. Yeah. So the question of duty, as we've brought up, is one of the greatest conflicts in Mary's life. And that's duty to her family, to tradition, but also to religion. And the children feel pressure to sacrifice their personal desires and beliefs for the sake of their mother, regardless of how she treats them. And we have talked about this, but how did you think that concept shaped everyone's life? And did you see it as being different for men and for women? 
Yeah, I was just going to say that. Mm. I think you see right from the beginning, the boys having a much clearer, a, a much more freedom. Mm-hmm. I mean, freedom to think and freedom to do and to choose their lives. And that it was foreordained if mm-hmm. Mary was the youngest of the family and the mm-hmm. only girl that she was going to be the one who was to take care of her parents. I mean, her father Mm -hmm. conveniently, you know, dies of alcoholism, but to take care of her mother. And I think the boys were, boy, that sense of duty. I I mean, in many ways, that mother is a monster. You're right. That whole ruling through weakness is, Mm. is powerful. And that Mm -hmm. she, that she could convince Mary, who's so smart. Yeah in other ways, so bright and intelligent. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what m- makes the book so interesting, that all of Mary's intelligence is powerless when it comes up against the kind of love that a child has for its mother and the kind of mm-hmm. Christianity that the mother tries to inculcate into her children. Yeah. She has to live in a a much more secluded life from the rest of the world. All the other boys get to do a lot more things. They get to work around the country. They get to more often at least go to like Uncle Victor's or something. And there's one point, and this actually did seem true to Mason Clare's life as well. She gets to go to a school for a little bit and... Suddenly, out of nowhere, she's recalled home, and the principals are devastated. Her friends are devastated. And when she kind of gets off the train, when she arrives back home, she sees her mom, and her mom goes like, "How could you be expelled? How could you do that to yourself?" And she's like, "They they were sad I was going. What happened?" And you realize that mm-hmm. the mom orchestrated this whole yeah. thing, and she's going to start trying to brainwash her to believe that she got expelled from this school rather right. than she was forced to come back home by this family. And mm-hmm. yeah, I know. I mean, what a book. It just like, <laughs> I mean, it just like, bam. Unexpected <laughs> every time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when Mary does eventually find those letters and discovers what her mother has done, I was kind of expecting there to be a turn yes. at that point where she's like, oh, now I've, I've seen through the illusion and I'm going to change my life. And she kind of does change her life, but she commits to staying with the status quo, to staying with her with her mother. And I thought that was just kind of It's incredible. A, such a break from the the narrative structure that I was expecting, but still very, very moving. What what did you think her motive was for for making that decision? I, that that's the hardest question, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. I think that she was unable to move outside all those Victorian prescriptions for the way that daughters, that women behave. Mm-hmm. And and that was the tragedy, I think. One of, well, maybe the great tragedy, that she had so much promise, promise intellectually, but also also found somebody who loved her that she loved and yet she couldn't live that life Mm -mm. I think that's what really she couldn't choose that Mm -hmm. well in some ways she did choose that life but but she it's a very romantic book in a way yes you know yes it is and the descriptions of her love are very moving they are for for Mark there's a real sort of psychosexual thing almost i felt at one point this suitor of hers sort of says something about like you could never give up mark and she says no i could never ever like leave mark for you like it's almost like another one of her lovers and it's like (laughs) that is your brother who has not seen you in five years but that's it's Mm. that intense devotion that i just would never have expected from a character like, imagine trying to pitch a book in today's market saying this is going to be a book about a character where she develops into becoming more submissive and um, yeah. n- never yeah. seizes control of agency. Right. Mm-hmm. You be but- ran out of town, but it's still so effective. And I, I think 
honest in its own way. And maybe that's why that whole first section is so important. I, I mean, we think, so we think we're reading a child's, you know, like what could happen when you're three years old and four years old and eight years, you know, eight years old, like, you know, you're a kid and you're going to, you're going to forget all that. It doesn't have any, mm-hmm. it hasn't imprinted itself in you, but all of that, all of those early years have been so important. I mean, that's why I think this is so, it's so Freudian in a way yeah. that you could just see that influence on the, on early childhood. How has, she loved Mark. Yes. I mean, Mark was the most important person to her, the kindest mm-hmm. person to her. Yeah. And then, God, that mother. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I want to read a little section that I think was almost like a Rosetta Stone moment for how she oh, inst- good. interacts with her mother. If you're in the Virago, yeah. it's on page 229. Okay. They're talking about her leaving another suitor. It was a good thing for you, my dear. You didn't get your way. I'd rather have seen you in your coffin than married to Maurice Chordon. Then There's an interesting way that they don't put who says things really in a lot of the dialogue, but then uh, Mary responds with, whoever it had been, you'd have said that. Perhaps I should. I don't want my only daughter to go away and leave me. It would be different if there were six or seven of you. Her mother's complacence and tranquility annoyed her. She hated her mother. She adored her and hated her. Mama had married for her own pleasure, for her passion. She had brought you into this world without asking your leave for her own pleasure. She had brought you into the world to be unhappy. She had planned for you to do the things that she did. She cared for you only as long as you were doing them. When you left off and did other things, she left off caring. I shall never go away and leave you, she said. She hated her mother and she adored her. An hour later, when she found her in the garden, kneeling by the flower bed, weeding it, she knelt down beside her and weeded too. I know, that's another falling off the, yeah. Wow. (laughs) Wow. She had brought you into the world to be unhappy. I mean, yeah, what a, what a statement about a mother daughter relationship. There were a couple notes in this section where I, I did see an interesting part of it with the brothers as well. The first part, and I guess how we look about duty with men. The first part is Dan, who seems to go off and do a lot of the things he wants and he gets to pal around with mama in like the smoking room and stuff. (laughs) And just seems like an interesting contrast to Mary. And at one point, Mary realizes that Dan has this great love for working the farm and this is not his actual job. And she sort of confronts him and he almost says like, it's his own submission into what the man should be in this Victorian age where he can't be the farmer of the house. He has to go off and make a living, even though what he loves is to farm. And again, a, a shocking punch that I didn't expect that this book would start to pull. And the last part is, as Roddy is sort of dying, I, just spoiler, all these brothers die. As, as Roddy <laughs> dies, he starts going a bit mad and he starts saying these stories. And I'm not sure, he, he swears that he kills this dog. And Mary says, no, you did not kill this dog. But even I start to wonder, did he kill this dog? But Roddy ha- in Roddy's story, he says, as he was tying this rope around this dog to hang it, the dog still licked his hand and was loving him. And that felt like the most exact metaphor of what is going on in this story, that even as you're being hung, you still are like, hey, this is my friend. This is my owner. This is my family. I will lick them. This is my mother. Yeah. I will stay and take care of her Mm. to the end. Truly. And plus, it's such a philosophical novel. Yes. As well. Yes. You know, in the guise of this mother-daughter family relationship. I mean, it's just chock full of philosophy and thinking about, there's that one section, the world was built up in space and time. Time and space were forms of thought, ways of thinking. If there was thinking, there would be a thinker. 
<laughs> you know, supposing, supposing the transcendental ego was the thing in itself. <laughs> I mean, what, what do you, you know, you're not going to find. <laughs> There's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That's another thing I could see, a, you know, a contemporary editor saying, mm-hmm. what? You know, <laughs> just this, like this big question mark. Like, what is this paragraph doing here? <laughs> Going along with that philosophy, though, and sort of this interest in like higher concepts, early on, even Mary shows this insatiable desire for knowledge, but she's often discouraged from reading or pursuing her own interests. And the big thing she wants to do is translate Euripides, and she manages to give herself a serious education. What do you think Sinclair was trying to demonstrate about the barriers to female achievement with this? Yeah, I, I think that there were women who were just born at the wrong time. I mean, Mm. had the bad luck to be born. I think there's a poem that says something like that. But she just wasn't that that kind of allowing herself, being allowed to live that kind of intellectual, to have that kind of intellectual interests. Mm. That just wasn't, wasn't allowed the same way that that kind of passionate love or sexual love was not something that was, I mean, she says that her mother married for passion, but she doesn't go into detail at all about that. But then she says, when she's talking about Maurice, she says, you were he, and at the same time, you were yourself going about with him. You loved him with a passionate, self-immolating love. Oh my God, now that is a sentence. Mm. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> there wasn't room for both of you on the raft. You sat cramped up, huddled together, not enough hardtack. While he was sleeping, you slipped off. A shark got you. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, what a, you know, what a view of mm. a passionate, self immolating love. Yeah. And that's kind of the love she has for her mother. Yes. Exactly. And do you think that children were, that women, us girls were raised to think that? Yeah. I mean, I'm just... Tr- I think so. Another thing was sort of, as she got a little older, it was like, well, we could tolerate your your interests when you were young. It was all cute then. But now it's time to grow mm-hmm. up and be serious. Right. But we remember what it was like in childhood, and it really wasn't that tolerated then either. Right. No. Right. And I think Mary struggles with the idea of like, well, when is it time for me? When when is my time? And that's why as she gets older, I found there is this inspiring part because in many ways it's like a quest for for love, for connection with people that she doesn't really have fulfilled in a healthy way. Uh, but it's also this quest for knowledge. And she does manage to do her translation and put out her poems Although she's doing it alone in a basement, nobody really knows about it. Yeah, but she right. she's yeah. doing it, and I thought that was really inspirational because there's a lot of ways, even in contemporary life, where you may not be able to pursue your number one greatest passion all the time, and you you have to conform to things in order to get your life together. But she's still keeping her her desires alive, and I I liked that element to it amid the tragedy. Mm-hmm. I think I didn't buy that mm. back back in the back in the day. <laughs> didn't buy it in what way? I didn't buy that that would give her enough pleasure, mm. enough satisfaction to make up for all that she was missing. Mm. That the life of the mind was not as satisfying yeah. as like a normal a normal life. Yeah. <laughs> she needs the the life of the body as well. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. So all books are in conversation with other books, but this one especially addresses many of the great 19th century women writers head on. I was interested how you compared or contrasted Mary with some other heroines that people may know, such as Jane Eyre, Maggie Tulliver, and Elizabeth Bennet. Did you see Mary's fate as a repudiation of previous models? Reading this book, especially rereading this book, made me so furious at the Victorians. <laughs> sure. And, and, 
I mean, there is no Jane Austen in this book. Mm. Absolutely right? none, especially Austen. Austen's She's out. found right. dead in a ditch from this book. She's out, <laughs> right, right. And there's even no, I mean, there's no Bronte. There's very little Bronte in this book, I mm-hmm. think, too. I see their shadows. Yeah. I saw some interesting comparisons because, and we talked about this before on the show, but because it was such a pivotal reading moment for me, is Cassia got me to read Valette last year. And just transcendental experience for me as a reader. (laughs) But that is an incredibly autobiographical book, similarly about a woman who seems to continually choose repression and choose putting herself back (laughs) in situations. That one's more in the world of a school. But so I I had Lucy Snow from Villette going along in my mind Mm -hmm. a bit, but nothing from Austin. Austin is gone with this, <laughs> with this book. So I, I am addicted to the, the novels of Georgette Heyer. Oh, sure. Who writes Regency, mm-hmm. Rom- you know, who invented yeah. the Regency romance. And when I think of, of her heroines, which are only just a little bit later mm. than, in fact, some you know, I think there's some overlap in, in time period. They're totally different mm-hmm. than, you know, I mean, my favorite Georgette Heyer is the Grand Sophie. Well, you know, there's no Jane Austen and there's no Grand Sophie in this yeah. in this book. Do you know mm-hmm. what it reminded me of? There's another Virago book that I wish New York Review would, would that they would bring out. Ooh. And I wish you would read it because I'd love to reread it and talk about it yeah. <laughs> um, with somebody. It's called I'm Not Complaining. Okay. And okay. it's set in the 1940s, 1930s. And it's about a, a teacher in, in sort of slum schools, I think in the East End of London, actually, but I could be wrong about that. And it has that same, that same self-sacrifice. Mm for for duty Mm. yeah that's what it reminded me of that there's no i mean there's you sort of want her this is entirely this wouldn't ever happen in this book in in mary olivier life but you sort of want her to just sort of say okay this is it mama i'm out of here yeah there is a point where i thought it was gonna happen and it's it's halfway it's like she sets it up when she when the mama finally says fine you get the greek novels that you want go off and do it and then mary goes well i don't really want to anymore right i couldn't do that not to mama and i'm just like oh my god that was yeah right she gave you the out right Mm. And then, you know, when she's when she's called back from that, her time with what's his name and, you know, they're just so in love and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they're sort of meet as intellectual equals. And I mean, this sort of pure, I mean, just what you would think that everybody would want. And then she's called back because, oh, my God, her mother is sick. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then. Then you just think like, okay, then the mom dies. And I I wish I had written it down, but there's a great point where she says, she introduces the mother's death by saying, is it George? I can't really remember all the names of the suitors. They just kind of come and go. But it's like George married 11 days days before 10 days. days I will never forget. (laughs) And you're just like, oh my gosh. And he marries Less the woman two who's weeks. a little older than he is, and he doesn't really love her. And oh God, it's just awful. And then she says something like, "Well, I couldn't try to pursue George now. He's with her. I have to do my duty." And just like, "Oh, can you, Richard? Again, again, His name is Richard. Ed- I just want to say Richard. it for the, Richard, for the record. Right. Yeah. Thank you. And can you imagine an editor being like?" This is it? The ending is she just doesn't go after the man that briefly got married? But this is real. This is is an honest investigation of this one woman's life. And and we we can take this into our final question, which we started with. This book contains a lot of tragedy, but it arguably ends on a hopeful note where this person finally starts to see herself for once. Is it a happy ending? And... We know that this is a written out 
portrait of her own life. But do you think Mary Olivier follows Mason Clare's life after this book, given how it's portrayed at the end? Does Ma- does Mason Clare get married? Did she ever marry? It said, let me pull up the wiki again, but it says she settled down with a companion very late in her life when she was diagnosed with Parkinson's. I don't believe she ever married. And I couldn't find a citation that said the name of the person, what their relation was, how how they met. So it could have been a woman, actually. Mm -hmm. The way it was written made me think it could have been a woman in that sort of time period language. But I I don't know if she... Was the companion mainly to take care of her in this progressing illness? I don't know. And so at least in my very brief research, I need to do more and I want to do more. And so maybe Mary Olivier does marry someone later on. Maybe she never becomes a suffragist and an important literary critic. I don't know. But I, I was wondering if you felt any difference between the two at the end. I think so. I think there is a difference. That's what I kind yeah. of felt too. And I don't know how to articulate why. I can't see Mary Olivier writing a book about mm. her own childhood and life. So there's one difference. Yeah. And Great that's point. a huge one. Yeah. Don't you just sort of see Mary Olivier as a kind of, you know, she sort of grows into being a Barbara Pym character, mm. like an excellent woman. <laughs> yeah. I love that. She's definitely, <laughs> yeah, Pym core for sure. Right, right. Yeah. I think that May Sinclair took it as far as it made sense to take it. Yeah, because this was not written up to the point where her life was. This was at least published 20, right. 25 years after sort of where the book leaves off. Right. I believe. Right. But she, she ends it right, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Because she does leave that openness. She does. And she she's does. having fun torturing you, I think, with those little details. Like <laughs> if he had waited 10 days, they could have been together. Right. And then even right. after it was like, they're not happy together. Richard doesn't like her. She's her hair is getting grayer. Like they keep doing all this stuff. And I she's kind of winking at you in that. Yeah. But it's also sincere. And there's this paradox that's playing out, kind of like what you were saying. Like I hated my mother and I adored her. It was like Mary hates her life and she adores her life. And I do think that women especially do this like game of happiness of like oh I'm so happy and Mary often goes in these little monologues where she talks about happiness the idea of happiness and how happiness feels and how it feels when it comes and how it feels when it leaves and at the end she's like I'm happy and it it, there's there's something about you know when someone tells you they're happy you have to wonder what are you who who is this for and I think it it's just such a powerful like understandable portrait of a woman and how women think about their life choices. I was pretty sure when I first read this book that I thought that Mary was just so was just deceiving herself Mm. that, you know, she said that rather than admit that she had made this bad decision, that bad decision, that bad decision. Mm -hmm. She very well could. But at at the very least, I know one person's happy at the end of the book, and it's Mason Clare forcing (laughs) you to get to that ending and saying, (laughs) bye. (laughs) Yeah, she she must have had fun writing that. She had fun ripping our hearts out. Yes, and her own heart out, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 10 days, that's like another knife, <laughs> knife in your heart. So sad and so funny. That's almost where the point where it becomes a comedy. It's a little yeah. comical, yeah. Where the tragedy becomes right. a comedy. Yeah, I mean, like you could see see another 21st century editor saying, come on, yeah. <laughs> give me a break. <laughs> no way. <laughs> or no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hackneyed. <laughs> I don't know. I just felt sorry for Mary Olivier. You can't help but. But she, I just think this book, it's brought up so many, how many topics have we talked about? Yeah. It's such an amazing book. And I can't believe that this is one of, I mean, even among NYRBs, this is somewhat lesser known. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really hope that people, people hear this and, and want to pick it up because it is like a thought experiment, but it's also a great story and it's also devastating. And it captures a time period so well. Mm-hmm. 
and women's roles at that time and expectations. And, and I think it's one of those books, too, that causes you to think about how much has changed or how little has changed sure. for women in the yeah. intervening time period and what it means to rule by weakness. Mm-hmm. That's very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah, because e- even yes, though society hopefully advances, some of these dynamics, they're still around. I've seen these these types of women in my own family or in my friendships. Mm-hmm. So I think it still speaks volumes. Yeah. I think so too. We're going to double those Mary Olivia life sales. Yeah, yeah. 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 Be right. right. Triple. It's going to go from <laughs> five to 10. <laughs> I, I did. I was looking over some reviews of the book and someone complained that he, he, he thought he was getting a biography of the poet Mary Oliver, but this book <laughs> oh, came sure. instead. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I would love to interview that guy <laughs> about what he thought of the book. <laughs> I read so many lukewarm reviews on Library Thing or Goodreads about this uh-huh. book. And, and I think I kind of understand where they're coming from, where it's like you'd ask these literary questions. How does this character develop? What, what, are, what are we looking with the inciting incident and the confrontation? Just basic storytelling things. And it, it, it doesn't give you any of it. And yet, yet at the end, more than almost any book in my life, I'm left thinking about character and narrative and language and my own life mm-hmm. more than I have in most other books. And so I, I can't deny, I think it's an overwhelming success, even though it breaks every rule I could imagine. And don't you think that this is a book, you know, when we talk about how how hard it is, like what social media has done, you know, with Twitter and jumping, that it's very hard to concentrate, to sit down and concentrate on a on a mm-hmm. long work of narrative. I mean, this is one of, because it's so stream of consciousness, that's a, an added challenge mm-hmm. yeah. to it. But I, but I think it's one of those books that does repay close reading, but also like this discussion. I mean, I think, I think this discussion just makes the book yes. mm-hmm. so much more. It helps you, each of us, I think, understand it on a deeper level and appreciate it even more than we did say going into the discussion absolutely quite an honor to hear you say nancy (laughs) totally totally from my heart thank you is there any other points you wanted to mention about the book no I, i i really think that i just loved this time together talking i just i thought it was just super super fun yeah and just we loved it too it's so exciting to talk to you thank you and we want to read the book you mentioned i'm not complaining absolutely i'm not complaining by ruth adam ruth adam okay we'll have to look look that one up and promote promote it yeah Yeah, we got to get it get get it back in print (laughs) get it back in print right (laughs) oh it's so good it's sort of like an up the down staircase but not as Mm. funny but tragic because oh, it's the depression in England. Oh, okay. Mm. But then I haven't read it for many years now, but it makes me want to go back. Maybe I'll reread it next. Sure. Forget this modern stuff and go back to that. Wow, that was great. That was one of the most, that was one of the best moments of my life. When, when we get married, like that'll be second to talking with Nancy Pearl. Yeah, maybe Nancy Pearl can officiate. And then it will be first. <laughs> That's true. I feel like I, I could just go on and on and on because this book is just so great to talk mm-hmm. about. It really is. It's a really well-crafted book on so many levels. Yes. And it's amazing the amount of things that she's she's tucked into there that maybe you didn't notice, you wouldn't notice immediately. But um, I didn't want to make it all about my interest, but I kept thinking of Ivy Comfort Burnett. I mean, to be fair, I think about her anyway. But that would have been a very Mary Olivia thing for you to do is just make it all about your interests. Or no, it would be like, I'm going to go in the corner and read. Well, she, she'll bring it up, but then she won't give herself to it. The, she'll get shut down. Yeah. But uh, her first book, Dolores, was all about a woman who sacrifices herself for her family. And then Ivy didn't write for many years mm-hmm. and then came back with this new style that she pretty much spent her entire career writing in. And the characters are always talking about how 
they're in these crazy family dramas, but there's this comedy, this undercurrent of comedy to it. And sometimes the actual plot events are tragic, but the way it's treated is deeply ironic. And the characters are commenting on how stupid it is to give yourself up for like these things. <laughs> and she always repudiated, she renounced her earlier work and she said she wouldn't let them print uh -huh. Dolores. She said it was something one wrote as a girl. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and I, I wanted to put her into that conversation because this book kind of merges those two exactly into one the girl and the fully formed woman by the end where she can sort of look back on her at least mason claire can really look back in her life with clarity and be as honest as she can about it yes even though maybe mary olivier herself couldn't as as nancy as nancy brought up at the end mm-hmm yeah, I mean, Mary is an invention. I think it's important. Like, even though it is really autobiographical, yeah. Mary is a character. That's why it's not called Mason Clare. <laughs> There's a purpose. Although, isn't Mary, Mary is her real name? Maze? Is it? I, don't... I saw that, yeah. Oh, Lord have mercy. Her birth name is Mary Amelia St. Clair. Mm. Yeah, she's a Mary. But it also works so well with the religious metaphors. and Yeah. I, I, again, loved when Nancy said, or maybe it was you that said, when someone says that they're happy, you feel... Like they're lying. That they're lying, that there is this undercurrent of almost trying to say you're happy rather than actually being happy. Happiness doesn't think about happiness. It's just in the moment. No, and I just love that. It, I love that it ends the book on that strange, strange concept it's really unsettling. I felt like this book captured something about women that I've never seen in a book or in any other art before. And what is that? Just about the the absurdity of the things that we ask women to do, <laughs> of the things that our bodies make us do, the things that we want biologically, and then the things that this other part of us wants, like our, our brain, the self that isn't that feels like it's not, it doesn't belong to your family or even to your body. It's like something else. Like Mary definitely feels, she's like a brain in a jar at certain points. Yeah. She dissociates from her existence. And I just, I really thought that it was really startling how she managed to put all that down. Yeah, this is one of the most unexpected and challenging reads I've had. More than A School for Fools, more than Stalingrad. I kept thinking of that this was A School for Fools crossed with Lolly Willows. Yeah, a bit, a bit. I could see that. But I just didn't expect going into it that this would be like the most challenging read that we've had. No. For, for, for me. But it was. And I relished in that challenge with just about every page I turned. Yeah, I didn't know what I was expecting. I guess I was just sort of, yeah, okay, kind of 20th century women thinking of that Virago thing. And I guess what's amazing about the Virago and also the NYB, because many many of the successes of Virago have been reprinted into this series. Mm -hmm. Women writers are just sidelined in literary history. Okay. But <clears throat> they... You hear it here first. You heard it yeah, here first, you, That's totally new concept for you guys. But like, I even do it myself. Mm. And I've read these books and I love them. But, but hold, you, hold you're on. You're obsessed with them. I'm obsessed with okay. them, yes. But what may sinclair does isn't like we can they all maybe tackle the victorian family and we think because they have the same setting or that they deal with similar themes that they're similar authors but in a way they're not mm -hmm. this is not like what elizabeth taylor does this is not like what ivy compton burnett does no it's not like what sylvia townsend warner does no they all are so distinctive there's such a massive separation between them even though they all may write about you know tea parties yeah and i can see parts of this book that i'm like okay that's kind of dialogue that i might hear in a house in its head or that's a line that would come out of a stw but no like i was not prepared for what a massive like achievement i think this book is i 100 percent agree yeah it kind of blew me away and i don't know when i realized like fully would demand this to be an achievement when in the book it was because like I said I was struggling a bit at points trying to keep up with it in a, in, in a way I was I felt like I was behind the book mm. 
And I think by the end, I was like, this is one of the best things I've encountered. Well, if that isn't enough for you, listeners, I don't know what more we can say. Get these <laughs> NYRB sales up. Because I know it's not that well sold. Because for your birthday, like last year, I bought you this book. And it's because I scrolled down, <laughs> sorting the website by best selling. And I went to the bottom because I know <laughs> you always have more NYRBs than I could expect. So I'm just like, I need to get the thing that is at the bottom that she probably hasn't seen. And you know what? This should be at the top of the list. It should be at the top. Get it to the top of the list. <laughs> I, I I command you, unmarried books listeners, buy this book today. Hashtag justice for Mary Olivier. We're going to do a big Twitter push for this. This is going to be a number one New York Times bestseller. Mark my words. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Our theme music is composed by John Hookstra. Bye. Bye.